Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we're really glad you've joined us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. As our regular listeners know, Jim Garrity is on vacation this week. Happy to be joined today, I believe, for the first time as a uh, fill-in for Jim on the Three Martini Lunch, Byron York, Chief Political Correspondent for the Washington Examiner. You also uh, see him frequently as a Fox News contributor. So, Byron, welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. And so let's get right into the good martini now. And there aren't a lot of good martinis that involve Andrew Cuomo. So you know something's not going well for Andrew Cuomo if he's in the good martini. So let's head over to the pages of the Wall Street Journal. It says Mr. Cuomo is starting to lose some of his major donors, suffering defections in recent weeks that could complicate an expected reelection bid as he fights off a state sexual harassment probe and a federal investigation into how his administration handled COVID-19 in nursing homes. The desertions are a worrying sign for a governor who has sought to project strength through one of the rockiest stretches of his 11 years as governor. Mr. Cuomo raised $2.3 million over the last six months, the second smallest haul of any such period of his governorship. That, according to campaign finance disclosures filed last week. For the first time, he was outraised by a Republican rival, U.S. Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin, who announced a gubernatorial bid back in April. They do quote uh, one defector here, Jeff Gurl, I think is how you say that, G-U-R-A-L, a real estate developer and casino owner who had previously given $175,000 to Cuomo's campaigns, saying, quote, he's smart, but he's a bully and his tactics are a disgrace and people should know how he runns the state. Uh, further down, uh, he has his uh, his defenders who are still giving him money, including one named Lawrence Rockefeller, yes, of the Rockefeller family, who says we have due process in this country. So he's still standing by Cuomo. Doesn't mean you have to donate five figures to him, though, Byron. So, uh, I mean, New York, deep blue state, uh, highly difficult for a Republican to win statewide there. But Zeldin's making some money bringing it in, and Cuomo's got some defectors, so will it actually make a difference? Yeah, I'm I'm sorry to start off by laughing, but, I mean, <laughs> he's a bully. They're finally figuring that out. Um, these donors have certainly taken their time uh, about this, and r- really what has been extraordinary about this case is that Cuomo is the latest example of uh, politicians who were in a position in which, in a, in a previous generation, they would have resigned in disgrace and embarrassment, instead toughing it out, like Governor Northam did after the blackface incident in uh, Virginia. So, I, you know, I think what's extraordinary about Cuomo is there he's, he's trying to project strength. I mean, he could not be weaker from a scandal point of view, because if there's something about um, the uh, sexual harassment charges that doesn't convince you, the mishandling of the COVID um, uh, pandemic certainly would. So it, it, what's really extraordinary is that he has a political life at all right now. And uh, he, he is, by the way, facing an investigation of the, the sexual harassment charges, and we could see something um, from that, and then he would be tested yet again. 
my initial reaction to reading that Wall Street Journal story, Byron, is, oh, you left out a bunch of stuff. Yeah, of course, the nursing home uh, death cover up and, and forcing them back into nursing homes is a huge scandal. The eight or nine or however many accusers he has now with the sexual harassment. But there's also uh, the staffers working on his book. There's also his friends and family getting to cut the line and getting faster test results on COVID. So, I mean, uh, they, they mentioned the biggest scandals, but uh, there's a whole lot more that, that we could talk about here. What do you make of the fact that we don't really have any Democrats seriously considering running against him? Because I would think that in New York, that's probably the most likely way to vote him out of office. I mean, the $5 million for the book was just astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. While he was screwing up the COVID pandemic and while people were likely dying because of his actions and he was covering them up, he takes all this money to write a book about how great he did during the pandemic. It's really extraordinary. As far as Democrats are concerned, as you know, the only calls for his resignation that really mattered in New York State were those by Democrats. And a, a number of them, from the head of, head of the legislature on down, were calling for that. So it's really um, uh, extraordinary that not one has come forward uh, to challenge him. And I think what it says... Um, is that they don't believe he's dead. They, they, don't, they think he can survive, uh, which is extraordinary. And it's extraordinary that he's running again. I mean, just, it's just an incredible act of chutzpah here to be doing this. But it's in line with what we've seen in recent years with troubled politicians. Exactly. And you, you were very smart to bring up the Ralph Northam example because I think that's the template now that a lot of people are following. If you just refuse to do it and uh, change the subject right. enough times, people will go away. And in, in Virginia, Democrats in the primary this year were actively seeking Ralph Northam's endorsement. So uh, there's literally no hangover in his party on that. We'll see if it if it matters in the general election. But uh, fascinating uh, to watch this. And of course, given what we do know about Cuomo's bullying tactics. Uh, if he does have political life left, uh, people are going to be reluctant to get on the other side. I don't know how we move this uh, so far away from the good martini because people are abandoning him. But uh, if it was if it was a more balanced state politically, we'd probably be more optimistic that this could actually make a bigger difference. But uh, you know what will make a bigger difference? Having really comfortable quality towels. Nothing beats the feel of a luxurious towel when you step out of the shower. And the very best you can get is the My Pillow Towel Set. I've got these towels. I love these towels. They're big. They're fluffy. They dry you off very, very quickly. Uh, definitely the favorite towels that I have. And right now, there's a fantastic deal waiting for you at MyPillow.com. Because right now, the six-piece towel set, which regularly sells for $109.99, you can now get for $39.99. Yep, $70 off. Look, each set is two bath towels, like I said, really big and nice, two hand towels, love those two, and of course the great washcloth two-pack. Uh, it's made from proprietary technology that makes the towels highly absorbent, they're soft to the touch, and they do not have that really annoying lotion-y feel. They're made with cotton grown in the USA, they're available in a wide variety of uh, colors and sizes, they're machine washable, and 
If that's not enough, they'll give you a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. But you're not going to need that money-back guarantee because you're going to love the towels. Visit MyPillow.com, use the promo code MARTINI at checkout, or call 800-874-0104. The MyPillow six-piece towel set is just $39.99. Now, while you're there at MyPillow.com, take advantage of the deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets and the MyPillow premium pillows. MyPillow.com or call 800-874-0104. All right, Byron, let's talk about our bad martini now. And you kind of need a, uh, a nice beverage and a comfy chair to read through this whole story from BuzzFeed. Uh, it's a long story, but it's a fascinating story about the case and how that case was built against those uh, formerly accused of trying to abduct Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, several months ago. Uh, And what we learn in this BuzzFeed story is that the FBI, uh, through its network of informants, and there were uh, at least 12 confidential informants in this story, uh, were very active in engaging uh, these militia members. And uh, depending on how you uh, look at the different versions of the story, may have actually goaded them into this plot and uh, and considering other things as well. Uh, They focus a lot on an Iraq war vet who uh, just wanted to hone his uh, his uh, gun skills, and he joined this group, and he thought they were way off, so he told the FBI. And instead of uh, taking the case from there, the FBI makes him an informant, and the guy ends up rising to one of the top levels in this organization. And uh, they eventually get to the point where they're bringing in other informants. They're actively recruiting them to come to Wisconsin and so forth. And so we get to this point in the story, uh, Byron, and it's it's said pretty well here in this BuzzFeed story, that on the one hand, they were able to infiltrate and break this up before it happened. But the counter argument here is that the FBI was egging these guys on and actually suggesting some of these horrible things. So the question is, would any of this have advanced anywhere if the FBI wasn't baiting the hook and pushing these people to do this? So this is a bad martini on a number of fronts. First of all, you have people clearly disturbed enough to be sympathetic and open uh, to these violent uh, ideas being uh, pushed out there, some by their own members and some by the FBI informants. But of course, then you also have the issue uh, of the FBI possibly uh, pushing uh, some of these people into activities they might not have otherwise considered? Well, it's a great question, and it is a really good story, and I would recommend that everybody uh, read it. But I'm, I'm going to start off, actually, with a, a different story, which is that some years ago, I was a producer for a local TV news station in Washington, D.C., and we were going to do this hush-hush undercover story on what remained of the Ku Klux Klan in the area. So bottom line is we, we managed to, to go to a cross-burning. It was, um, if I remember correctly, in Thurmont, Maryland, not far from Camp David. So it's, it's kind of a ragtag, pathetic group. But I remember having the distinct feeling at the time that at least half these guys were cops undercover, that you know they were, they were either FBI or state police or sheriffs or somebody but at least at least half of these guys were informants and indeed the FBI took great pride over its history in bringing down and infiltrating uh the Ku Klux Klan so come to this story um what's clear in in this arrest last october more than a dozen militia members were uh, arrested charged with this plot to kidnap the governor they were apparently angry uh over the way she handled imposed lockdowns during the pandemic 
And what we're finding out now, uh, as the, the case is near court, and we're seeing we're seeing testimony and evidence being released, um, is that the FBI had a bunch of people involved. The the story says at least twelve uh, informants, and there were a lot more uh, undercover agents involved as well. So there may have been more FBI people involved in this than there were plotters. And uh, you're right; they were they were doing more than just observing and listening to what these people were doing. They they were trying to recruit new members. The FBI was pushing pushing their informant to try to get new people to come in and go to these meetings. They were setting up meetings. They were paying for the hotel rooms for people to come uh, to these meetings. And so at every step of the way, they were pushing this along. Now, you're going to have the defendants say that they were entrapped into this whole thing. They would never have done this uh, without them. Usually that doesn't work. But I think in any case like this, whether it works or not as a successful defense, you need to know what the FBI is doing. When you, when you see this story, my goodness, there's this militia, right-wing militia, white supremacist, whatever plot here. You need to know if the government had, had helped this along and paid for it. Uh, we need to know that. Well, that's that's clearly the case. And so the question is, where's the dividing line? Your story about uh, going to the cross burning event uh, a number of years ago uh, fits into this as well, given all the informants you thought were there. So the innocent part of this story is the beginning, of course, when this uh, Iraq war vet joins this group, sees uh, something's wrong here. So he tells the FBI and then they turn him informant. So where's the line, legally speaking, uh, ethically speaking, where you infiltrate to keep an eye on and where you cross the line in terms of actually getting people to do things that they might not have done otherwise. Well, the legal line has got to be overt acts to further uh, a conspiracy. Now, we don't know uh, if that uh, is actually the case. We don't know if that was done. But the, the thing that makes this story even bigger than Michigan and, you know, plotting to kidnap the governor is no small thing. Right. Uh, But it's even bigger than that because some of the groups the FBI was looking at uh, were the three percenters and the Oath Keepers. And if anyone is following the investigation into the Capitol riot, they'll see that there is a a big prosecution going on into the three percenters and into the Oath Keepers, among others, the Proud Boys being another group that uh, prosecutors are looking at. So the question is, and it, it's, you just got to think about this, um, if the FBI had so deeply infiltrated these groups um, in the Michigan case, uh, is there some reason why they did not infiltrate uh, some of the groups that were involved in uh, the Capitol riot? Now, you have to say right off at the very beginning emphatically, None of this is to say that the Capitol riot was an FBI operation or that the federal government caused the riot. That is not the case. But just like we were saying before, if the FBI is playing a role in this uh, and it knows about actions ahead of time, and the BuzzFeed article makes it clear that in Michigan, uh, the FBI informants kept top officials uh, updated on everything that was being planned. And of course, they foiled the plot by arresting them all before it could ever happen. So uh, were they completely in the dark as far as the Capitol riot was concerned? Or perhaps did they know more 
uh, about what some of these groups were planning? I mean, that's a really, really important question. You already mentioned it, Byron, and it's in the article, of course, as, as well, that uh, a lot of times the defendants will argue entrapment and ultimately that defense doesn't hold up. But it would just seem to me that you'd have a stronger case if your infiltrator was actually trying to tamp down uh, emotions and evil plots <laughs> and then uh, have people go, oh, no, man, we're doing this. We're doing this, whether you're with us or not, rather than you being the person. Right. Like, Wait, what about this? Why don't we try this? Uh, it would just seem to be a much clearer example of what their true intentions were. Uh, apart from any sort of uh, suggestion uh, from people either in the FBI or working for them. Well, I will say that that when you read this article and when you read other things about uh, militias, uh, I've always felt that there was a, a serious element of cosplaying in it, sort of costume playing. They're, they're, people are sort of acting things out, um, and they take some satisfaction in that. So you never really know. Do they really plan to do it? Of course, some people actually do amount attacks. Uh, so you, you can't say it's all cosplay. Uh, and as far as the, the Capitol riot is concerned, clearly there were a lot of people, 800 or more, who, entered, who actually entered the Capitol. And they're all accountable uh, for their own actions. They're responsible for what they did, the people who ransacked uh, the Capitol. But... Uh, what was going on ahead of time, and, and and you know that's one of the things. If if Democrats were not so so focused on getting Trump uh, in investigating the Capitol riot, I mean this is an extraordinary thing that we need to know, which is what were uh, what was the state of knowledge of U.S. law enforcement? I don't mean just the FBI, uh, but any other intelligence or law enforcement agencies in, in the days leading up to January six. Yeah, no, it's a good point, and it's uh, it's ugly. It's an ugly story on a couple different fronts because clearly you had people predisposed to agree to some of these suggestions, and uh, well, the process will play itself out. And if they're found to be guilty, they they definitely should face serious consequences. But uh, you want to be able to keep an eye on people with uh, with very ugly plans, but you also want to make sure that the government's not uh, pushing them into those very ugly plans. So. Complicated business, but we'll see where it goes from here. Uh, let's talk about something that's uh, a little less complicated, and that is how to protect yourself online and to make sure that uh, your internet company isn't uh, feeding all your data out there so uh, people know how to advertise in your direction and, and just otherwise uh, compromise you. And so ExpressVPN is definitely the way to go because you want a VPN that you can trust. And uh, VP ExpressVPN is one that is simple to use and it does a great job for a number of reasons. First of all, ExpressVPN doesn't log your activity online. Lots of cheap or free VPNs, they'll make money by selling your data to the advertisers, but ExpressVPN does not do that. They even developed a technology they call Trusted Server that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. And, you know, ExpressVPN is also really, really fast. It uses something called Lightweight, Lightweight which is a, a new VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. And you've, you can try lots of other VPNs. They can sometimes slow your connection down, but ExpressVPN is always really blazing fast and lets you stream videos in HD quality with zero buffering. It's also easy to use. I mean, it does not require any technical skills. That's good news. And <laughs> you just fire up the app, tap one button, and connect. Uh, and it's not just me saying this. CNET, 
The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. It can't get easier than tapping one button. I'm pretty sure all of us can handle that, especially when you know uh, the protection that you're going to get from that. So protect yourself with the VPN that you can trust. Use our link, expressvpn.com slash martini today, and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash martini. Visit expressvpn.com slash martini to learn more. All right, Byron, we're going to get a lot of stories today about how evil Senate Republicans are, how they're obstructionists and how they're blocking things, because Chuck Schumer is going to try to uh, open and uh, and allow debate on the quote-unquote infrastructure bill, which last I saw hadn't actually been completed yet. And of course, uh, the Democrats are kind of uh, on the verge of snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory here. They had this much ballyhooed bipartisan framework done. And then the very same day President Biden celebrated at the White House, he says, I'm not even doing that deal unless I also get a reconciliation package on three and a half trillion dollars uh, that will uh, be able to get passed even without any Republican support. And so you have written recently on everything the Democrats want to jam into this $3.5 trillion. And, of course, that price tag could always go higher. And as you uh, pointed out on Friday, one of the things they're licking their chops over here is the possibility of stuffing amnesty uh, if they get that chance for a straight, simple majority on their, on their giant wish list of legislation. What can you tell us about what they're planning here? Well, this is really kind of mind-blowing. First of all, put aside the real infrastructure bill, the roads, bridges, airports, trains kind of uh, bill that is a bipartisan bill and is probably headed for defeat anyway. But uh, put that aside. The, the, the really big spending bill, the $3.5 trillion bill that Democrats are throwing, uh, you know, universal pre-K, free college, health care, just all sorts of stuff that they call human infrastructure. They they don't plan to get Republican votes for that anyway. Since the Senate is tied 50-50, uh, they believe they can use the reconciliation process, which does allow a limited number of budget and fiscal-related measures to be passed without a filibuster, that is, with a simple majority, since the Senate is tied 50-50. If they can get all the Democrats to vote for it, they'll have 50, and then Vice President Harris can break the tie, and then they'll pass this whole thing through reconciliation. So now they think, you know, if they could do that, they could throw anything in there. They don't have to get any Republican support. They can throw anything in there. So they're talking about putting in an amnesty for millions of people who are in the country illegally, generally estimated to be about 12 million people. Uh, and there have been efforts to to give them legal status as part of a comprehensive immigration deal for, for many years. There was one in 2006, 2007, 2013, and it has never happened. Uh, and so now Democrats are saying, well, maybe we can just do it in this, in this really, really big bill. Uh, there are problems with it, uh, but it does look that they're going to at least try to do it, which would satisfy some of their more activist groups that really want to see them do this. The Senate parliamentarian has uh, disrupted some Senate Democratic plans. Uh, she uh, would not allow the $15 minimum wage and the COVID relief bill. And I believe she's at least limited them to one more crack. Maybe it's just this fiscal year, which we don't have that much left of. But she's put the brakes on some things. Would amnesty fit in that category, you think? 
Well, you'd have to think. I mean, if she threw out the minimum wage, which is kind of fiscally related, um, my goodness, she would she would have to throw out um, uh, amnesty. So my my guess is that they might get stopped, which is, again, there are certain Democrats who just love to actually do this. But they also think, well, if we fail, we can go back and show uh, the activist groups that we really tried. So I think it's it's almost a win-win situation for them. And who knows, maybe, maybe it'll somehow sneak through. Byron, you mentioned that the uh, the number uh, often given here is about 12 million. I feel like that was pretty much the same number when we were debating all this during the George W. Bush administration, <laughs> which is closing in on 15 years ago now. So do we have any idea what that number might be today? No, you raise a great point. As a matter of fact, when I wrote this newsletter about it, I went and looked back at that. And the estimate still is around 12 million people. Obviously, people die and then new people come. Uh, but we've seen, you know, this rush to the border since President, President Biden took office. So you think it's got to be increasing. Uh, we've seen estimates. We've seen people kind of just throw out numbers, 20, 25 million people. But uh, right now, the official estimate, the one that I used, is still around 12 million people. So we really just don't know, which is uh, a problem in and of itself. Of Probably course. better to say yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Wow. Byron, well, we covered a lot of ground today. Great to be with you. A uh, lot of fun. Let's do it again later in the week. Enjoyed it, Greg. Thanks for having me. Byron York is the chief political correspondent for The Washington Examiner. He's also a Fox News contributor. In for the vacationing Jim Garrity today, I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you for listening to the Three Martini Lunch. Be sure to subscribe if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Also, uh, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. You know, at Jim Garrity. He's at Byron York. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday and please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. More Americans died from drug overdoses last year than any year on record. Yet parents and kids are not being educated on the crisis and there seems to be no real plan to address it. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, former DEA official Derek Maltz joins me to discuss just how big a problem this really is and what can be done to fight back. Don't miss this really important conversation. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.